I listen to American I listen to American timelines. I listen to American timelines while I poop. Twilight poop. Twilight poop. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. It's the greatest podcast ever. History, 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 Samantha, that's a hippie. Thank you for downloading another episode of Miracle Timelines. Miracle Timelines? Is that the name of the show? No. Miracle Workers. Ow. This chair sucks. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yep. Thank you for Welcome downloading to another episode a new of, episode of American Miracle Timelines. Workers. <laughs> what? Miracle Whip Workers. What? That's ridiculous. Welcome to a new episode of Notable Alumni, the podcast that takes you through uh, random high schools uh, in America, and we tell you who the notable alumni of those schools are. We tell you what colors they wear, what the uh, mascots are. I thought you were going to say what colors they are. Yeah, what colors the team colors they wear. No, I thought you were, you were going to say what color the alumni were. No, then we're going to tell you the notable alumni. For instance, Marla Gibbs. Okay. I went to a school with, you know, like Vic Tabak was, mm-hmm. you know, went to uh, the same know. school as Kim Fields. Yeah, it, it was uh, and tonight, the Burbank Bulldogs. Tonight we're going to talk about 1965. Yes, 1965. We've already delved into 65, as you remember from last episode. Yes. Episode 85, I think. I think it was 86. Um, so we only got through one month. This is actually American Timelines. I've got to come clean. This isn't Miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, miracle Notable Alumni. All right. That's my spinoff podcast. Watch out for that soon. Starring Grover Cleveland Steamer. But uh, we're starting off in February mm-hmm. of 1965. Because last episode was january of 1960 right so we only got through one episode so if you're listening to this and you were alive in 1965 tweet us oh no wait you but if that's the case you don't know what twitter is yeah right if you were born in 1960 if you were alive in 1965 basically you don't you don't know how to tweet you yeah, send us a letter yeah that's the, right in the post in the post <laughs> <laughs> talk to your local postman yep and send your letter to History of Jerks, care of uh, the, <laughs> the government center at the White House. No. To the White House. You've been I'm not going to give it. We're not going to give them an address. You can't mail it. You have to just email. They people born six five know what email is. They can email. Yeah. Joe at historyforjerks dot com or Amy. At historyforjerks.com. Not dot gov. We better just do Joe because I'm never going to. Yeah, you don't know how to. 
I'll never get it. I think I forwarded it to your email, but maybe not. Anyway, let's jump right into February, shall we? So I waste all this time where everybody's yeah. getting mad. That's your fault. Because on Saturday, February 6th, 1965, mm-hmm. I have trouble saying February. Yes. Uh, we have a new number one song on the M&F and Billboard charts by the Righteous Brothers. And that sounds a little something like this. Didn't we already do this? Hold on, it didn't work. I didn't have it plugged in all the way. I think we already did this. No, we talked about this, but it didn't hit the Billboard charts yet. We talked about it because it's the most played song ever in the history yes. of the universe. I remember that. But uh, now it's the number one song in the Billboard charts. And it's written by Phil Spector, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Wheel. I think we already did all this. No, I only said one thing about it. No. It was first recorded by the Righteous Brothers in 1964. Uh, and this recording is considered by some music critics to be the ultimate expression and illustration of Spectre's wall of sound recording technique. Mm-hmm. It's been described by ver- various music writers as one of the best records ever made. The ultimate pop record. I wouldn't say that. You wouldn't? No. Phil Spector, uh, in 1964, he uh, conducted the band at a show in San Francisco where the Righteous Brothers were also appearing, and he was impressed with them enough to want to record for his label. And previously, he only featured black singers, and this is the first white guys he ever worked with. Righteous Brothers are white? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, they're so white. This doesn't sound like white guys to you? It sounds so white. But they did say they had a black vocal style termed blue-eyed soul. That suited Spectre. Yeah, I don't know. I always pictured them as black. Oh, they sound so white to me. Um, anyway, Phil Spectre took a cue from Baby I Need Your Lovin' by the Four Tops. Yes. Uh, to write a ballad. They kind of wrote the melody first. And they came up with a... Uh, the opening line, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips, influenced by a line from the song, I Love How You Love Me, co-written by man. I know how your eyes close whenever you kiss me. Or okay. I love how your eyes close. Anyway. Uh, the line, you've lost that love and feeling, was originally intended to be a dummy line that was supposed to be replaced later. But they never replaced it. Oh, okay. And criticisms of the song made Spectre so nervous that he didn't sleep for a week when the record came out. He was so sick, he got a spastic colon. Jesus. And he got got an ulcer. Good night. Something's wrong with that guy. Well, he's a murderer. Yeah, I think he murders somebody. Yeah, he did. Anyway, according to BMI, the Performing performing Rights Organization, it became the most played song of all time on American radio in 1997 with over 7 million airplays Mm -hmm. overtaking the Beatles yesterday. I think the reason this got made it so late is like Top Gun had this in it. Yeah. And there was several episodes of Cheers that had this song because it was Rebecca Howe's favorite song. Oh. Um, so it just kept coming back into yeah. the lexicon. Yeah. Okay. And people keep playing it. And then Sunday, February 7th, 1965. February. February. Uh Christopher Julius Rock was born in Andrews, South Carolina on February 7th, 1965. 
Okay. And you didn't know this, but shortly after his birth, his parents moved to Crown Heights. He's from, he was born in South Carolina, but he moved to the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, they relocated and settled in the working class area of Bed-Stuy. His mother, Raza Lee, was a teacher and social worker for the mentally handicapped. And his father, Julius Rock, was a truck driver and newspaper delivery man. Okay. Uh, Rock's, Chris Rock's great-grandfather, Julius Caesar Tingman, was a slave for 21 years before serving in the American Civil War as oh, wow. part of the United States Colored Troops. That's really wild. Uh, Chris Rock was bused to schools in predominantly white neighborhoods of Brooklyn where he endured bullying and beatings from white students. As he got older, the bullying became worse, and Rock's parents pulled him out of James Madison High School where he went, which is home of the Knights, mm-hmm. who wear black and gold, uh, according to our notable alumni podcast uh, notable other notable alumni include no. andrew dice clay martin lando carol king ruth bader ginsburg and bernie sanders they were the white people beating up chris rock Ooh, man anyway and then sunday february 20th 1965 we got another number one song on a billboard with shorts by gary lewis and the playboys are, are you familiar nope this is written by al cooper bob brass and Irwin Levine. Oh, yeah. It was first recorded by Sammy Ambrose, mm-hmm. but then by Gary Lewis and the Playboys, produced by Snuff Garrett. You know Snuff Garrett? No. He went to the same high school as Dennis Rodman and Harvey Martin. South Oak Cliff High School in Dallas, Texas. Stop one of the golden, one of the golden bears. They wear golden white. Stop anyway, doing that. Uh, Lewis has denied claims that the Playboys did not play on this record. It says not only was the band largely self-contained, but the Wrecking Crew session musicians only came in to do overdubs or solos. But a lot of people said the Wrecking Crew actually mm, okay. So it was controversy. Who cares? You don't care about South, South no. Oak Cliff High School in Dallas, Texas? No. Dennis Robinson went there. And then, Sunday, February 21st, night. I think you should change it up, and it should be the elementary school that they went to. That's my, a lot more digging. Lot I more know, research. but that's what I want you to do. I want you to work, work towards that. That'd be a better bit than high school. It's impossible to find. <laughs> I don't have the time. Now, I understand you have something for us that happened on uh, Sunday, February 21st, 1965, other than mm-hmm. uh, an episode of My Favorite Martian that was on when Martin finds out that Mrs. Brown is in financial straits due to her overgenerous nature mm-hmm. and through noodle soup, Martin gives her some Martian subliminal messages to save money. Uh, the suggestions which have an extreme effect. She no longer trusts banks, so she takes all her money out of the bank and keeps it at home. But there's a cat burglar on the loose, and uh, Mrs. Brown now has a house full of cash, and he tries to steal the money, but Martin and Tim end up stopping him. Uh, but they end up with the money, and Tim is charged with theft. So all Martin needs to do is get the real burglar, Mrs. Brown, and some more noodle soup to the police station to set things straight. What do you think's wrong with him right now? Oh, that's our dog. He's sneezing and tapping. He's tap dancing on the on the tile. He's coughing. What's wrong with him? Do oh, to... dog barf? No. We'll pause for our dog. We'll now pause for not station identification, but dog barf. <laughs> Every time our dogs decide to change rooms, see, you can hear them. They'll pause on the, <laughs> on the hardwood floor. 
I don't know what's wrong with him. It's like something on his face. He, it's like he's trying to get something off of his face. Yeah, he has special needs. Dog <laughs> yes, special needs. he does. He uh, has a lot of brain damage. There he goes. There he goes. Getting in a beanbag. Now he's comfy. Anyway. Oh, he's so cute. So somehow, on My Favorite Martian... God, the, the Martians, stop with this. Nobody gives a shit. The, the Martians spoke to people through their noodle soup somehow. Okay, that was fascinating. Yeah, sometimes they put their dick in noodle soup. Anyway, you have something that happened during that episode of yeah. My Favorite Martian, I guess. That was on TV. Yes. Noodle soup telepathy mm-hmm. was on TV while mm-hmm. some Yes, I'm going to talk about the, um, the assassination of Malcolm X. Oh. So, um, so there's no rape there. Not we that can... we know of. The man could always try to hide, though, things, you know. I'm glad you did, Malcolm X. I've been trying to get you to do Malcolm X, and I thought you weren't going to. So let me give you just a little bit of of the whole picture. Okay. Um, the racial segregation in, in the North was... Oh. Uh, it was the reality in the North, even though... Um, Not in the South? Well, blacks who left the South... Oh, they all went to the North. Went to the North, but there was still a lot of racism in the right. North and segregation. And yeah. they found themselves... They were in huge ghettos, urban ghettos, and their children had, were in inferior schools. And, um, yep, it's sad. Any of the professional or skilled jobs were reserved for white people. Stupid white dicks and and a lot of police harassment too so almost a quarter of blacks said they'd been mistreated by the police and 40 yeah. percent said they had seen others abused yep sadly it's probably the same today any illusions held by southern blacks about the liberal north were not held by those already living there right and so um martin luther king's message was like the southern blacks kind of message and um, in the first years of the civil rights struggle, the most significant organizational expression of uh, that new movement was the Nation of Islam. Okay. Um, by the late 50s, the group's membership reached an estimated 100,000. Wow. And Malcolm X was its most prominent member. Okay. The Nation of Islam's leader's name was Elijah Muhammad, mm. and he called for establishing an independent black state. And he didn't care if it was in the United States or somewhere else. Okay. Um, but that was kind of like his his thing. And other than that, he didn't want to get involved in politics at all. Elijah Muhammad didn't? Get, right. Right. He, he was, just wanted and he to, was yeah. the leader. Right. But Malcolm X be, became this pull for more militants to join the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Um, because he was dynamic and yes. like... Had charisma and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's really good looking. And in, in response, they in, in in response to the charge that the nation was racist, Malcolm X said, "Quote: If we react to white racism with a violent reaction, to me that's not black racism. If you come to put a rope around my neck and I hang you for it, to me that's not racism. Right. Yours is racism, but my reaction has nothing to do with racism. Right? Um, he rejected the view that integration." was either possible or desirable. And he um, viewed the federal government and the Democratic Party not as allies, but as part of the problem. And he was sharply critical of liberals who talked about racism in the South. 
but had nothing to say about conditions in the north saying i will pull off that liberal's halo and he'll he shall he spent let me try it again i will pull off that liberal's halo that he spends such efforts cultivating he was also sharply critical of the civil rights movement's leaders okay he thought they were containing the struggle more than leading it he went on to attack the whole premise of nonviolence that underlay the Southern desegregation movement. And he or argued kind of for black self-defense instead. He said, be careful, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts a hand on you, send him to the cemetery. Boom. That's a good religion. In fact, that's the old time religion. Preserve your life. It's the best thing you've got. And if you've got to give it up, let it be even Stephen. Even Stephen is the center fielder for the Milwaukee no. Brewers. So Malcolm is becoming more and more political, and it's pissing off Elijah Muhammad because he doesn't want he the did, nation to be involved in politics. Sure. So he takes measures to reassert his control. He um, suspends Malcolm X, like, temporarily as a member. And oh. so Malcolm X is like, well, yeah, right. And so he turns around and he... Formally breaks with the nation of Islam. On you think he said, "Yeah, right." Y yeah. Yeah, I, I have an official word for you, <laughs> nation of Islam. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know Malcolm X of all people. Yeah. He's like one of the most eloquent yeah. speakers. Um, I say, "Yeah, right" to you. <laughs> yeah, right. I say. All right. So um, that was December 1963 when he did when he broke with the nation of Islam. Oh, did, wait. He broke with the nation of Islam the same time that America America came out. And the same time Frank Sinatra's son was kidnapped? Yes, that we already talked about. Yeah, we sure did. That's a throwback, y'all. Yes, so. <laughs> you're ridiculous. It's a throwback. Throwback. So the. Um, World Class Wednesday. Throwback Thursday. On um, March days. 8th, 1964. Oh, wait, wait. March The same March 8th, 1964 that. Cheryl James was born, otherwise known as Salt from Salt and Peppa, mm -hmm. who went to Grover Cleveland High School, the same school as Rosie no, Perez and Ridgewood it. Queens. They were black and orange, the home of the Tigers. So that's when he formally announces his break with the Nation of Islam. Notable alumni. Oh, that's when he announced the same day Cheryl James was born. Okay. That's right. Okay. Um, he advocated greater engagement in the black struggle exploding around the country, warning that the black Muslims could find themselves one day suddenly separated from the Negroes' frontline struggle. Hmm. Um, so he, th he drew the conclusion that he needed to separate politics and religion. And he said, we don't mix our religion with our politics and our e economics and our social and civil activities. Not anymore. Yeah. We become involved with anybody, anywhere, anytime, and in any manner that's designed to eliminate the evils, the political, economic, and social evils that are afflicting the people in our community. All right. So on the morning of the Sunday, mouthful. February 21st, 1965. The we already established. My favorite Martian yes. was on. Yes. And it was the he best episode where there were telepathy through noodle soup. He woke up in his 12th floor hotel room at the Hilton Hotel in New York. Oh, it was in New York? Mm-hmm. Around 1 p.m., he checked out of the hotel and headed for the Audubon Ballroom, where he was to speak at a meet of his OAAU, a now, meeting of his OAAU. Yeah, it was a meeting, but just because it's the Audubon doesn't mean it's, it's filled with birds. Right, exactly. Doesn't mean that. So he parked his blue Oldsmobile nearly 20 blocks away, which seems surprising for someone who was being hunted. 
Yeah. And you wouldn't think he would have parked that far away. Maybe there was so many. He just couldn't find a spot. Maybe. God, there's just no spots here. When he arrived at the Audubon Hotel, he headed backstage. He was stressed, and it was beginning to show. He lashed out at several people, shouting angrily, and it was very out of character fuck for him. Fuck you, Gary. Fuck you, Gary. Get the fuck out of my way, Gary. I'm not a fucking parking spot, Gary. <laughs> when, uh, um, fuck you, Lorraine. So when the meeting was to start, Benjamin Goodman went out on stage to speak first, and he spoke for about a half an hour. Benny Goodman? War- warming up the crowd of about 400 people. Okay. Then it was Malcolm X's turn. So he steps up the stage and he stands behind a wooden podium. Yeah. And he gives the traditional assalamu alaikum and gives the res- got the response. Yeah. What's the response? I think they say the same thing back, don't they? No. Assalamu alaikum. Lakum salam. Oh, I, uh, I don't know. As- I can't say either one of them, but I've heard it before. Um. As- so this like, ruckus begins in the I middle of the remember. crowd. Yeah. And a man had stood up sh- shouting. A ru- wait, a ruckus? Yeah. A man stood up, shouted that the man next to him had tried to pickpocket him. Uh-oh. So Malcolm X's bodyguards leave ruckus. the stage to go deal with that situation. Uh-oh, the bodyguards are distracted. This leaves Malcolm unprotected on the stage. So oh, no. He, he sidesteps away from the podium saying, let's be cool, brothers. Yeah, be cool, be cool. It was then that a man stood up near the front of the crowd, pulled out a sawed-off shotgun from beneath his trench coat, and shot at Malcolm Oh, X. no. Sawed-off shotgun, hand on the pump. The blast from the shotgun made Malcolm fall backward. Over Wait, right there chairs. in front of all these people? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The, yeah. the man with the shotgun fired again. Then two other men rushed the stage, firing a Luger and a forty-five automatic pistol. All at Malcolm X? Hitting mostly in his legs. Yeah. All shooting him? Yeah. Like three guys are yeah. shooting him? Oh, no. So these are the... Members of the Nation of Islam, right? They're shooting. Well, maybe. Oh, got away for that. The noise from the shots, the violence that had just been committed, and the smoke bomb that had been set off in the back all added to the chaos. Oh, a smoke bomb. So, and everybody's probably running and screaming. Well, and that's what I was going to say. The next, uh, so the audience is trying to escape, like, in mass. Yeah. The assassins use the confusion to their advantage as they blend into the crowd. Sure. And all but one escaped. Oh. So the one who did not escape was Talmadge Tommy Hayer, sometimes called Hagen. Really? Talmadge. Talmadge Tommy. He um, had been shot in the leg by one of Malcolm X's bodyguards as he was trying to escape. Oh. Once outside, the crowd realized he was one of the men who had just murdered Malcolm X, and the mob, st- mob started to attack him. Good. Luckily, a policeman happened to be walking by, saved him, and managed to get him into the back of a police well, car. Well, yeah, you got to get the evidence. Gotta, he's got to talk. we got to yep. make him sing like an Audubon bird. During the pandemonium, several of Malcolm X's friends rushed to the stage to try to help him. It's pandemonium. But he was too far gone. His wife, Betty Shabazz, had been in the room with their four daughters. Oh, no. His daughters saw it all? Yep. Oh, horrible. Malcolm X was put on a stretcher and carried across the street to Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. They tried to revive him, but it was not successful. So the public wants his uh, assassins to be caught. And so, yeah, the you know t- Tommy Hare was obviously the first one arrested, and there was strong evidence against him. He'd been taken into custody at the scene. A forty-five cartridge was found in his pocket, and his fingerprint was found on the smoke bomb. Yep. The police found two other suspects by arresting men who had been connected to another shooting of an NOIX member. The problem was there was no physical evidence tying these two men. Thomas 15X Johnson and Norman 3X Butler to the assassination. Wait, 15X and 3X, what does that mean? Well, it's like Malcolm X. Oh, X it's is... Like it's like you take away your slave name or whatever. Oh, okay. 
I didn't I know think. there was a three X and a five X. I don't know. X. That's what it says in this article. That's what they said as their names. Were. Well, I guess he's Malcolm X. Yeah. I never understood what the. I don't know. The police had one eyewitness that vaguely remembered them being there. Okay. So there was just, despite this weak evidence, uh, the trial of all three began on January 25th, 1966. Oh, wait, you're telling me it started the same day that Rob Zombie was born? Yes. And also on McHale's Navy, Ernest Borgnine did a bunch of nude, tastefully nude scenes? Mm Mm-hmm. That same day. Wow. That's right. Um with, so with the evidence mounting against him, Hayer took the stand and stated that Johnson and Butler were innocent. Oh. And so that shocked everybody in the courtroom. So he took the fall? He was taking the fall for everybody else? I guess, yeah. Huh. It, it was fall un- guy. It was kind of unclear whether they really were innocent or whether Hayer was just trying to get him off well, the Well, and, and that, this actual story, I think, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. is the premise for the show The Fall Guy later on I don't in think the 80s, so. right? Same thing? But anyway, all three men were found guilty a first-degree murder on March 10th, 1966. Oh, they're found guilty on... Sentenced to life in prison. Oh, on March 10th, 1966, the same day that on Gilligan's Island, Gilligan, disco- Gilligan discovers an underground source of hot water on the island, but mm-hmm. the professor soon learns that the source of the hot water is an active volcano on the other side of the island. Meanwhile, the skipper shaves all of his body hair in the Gilligan soup. That's disgusting. Yeah, that happened. So, um... When gross. He, so when he was assassinated, was a gross show. many Americans viewed his killing as simply the result of on, the ongoing feud between him and the Nation of Islam. Yeah, they just yeah, they just assumed it was the Nation of Islam. That and it, because it, also a week before he was killed, his home, which was owned by the Nation of Islam, and they were trying to evict him. Yeah, um, it was firebombed, and he believed the members of the Nation of Islam had been responsible. They for had that. done that too. There's a picture you can see online of him. Like holding a a big gun, like a I think a machine gun or something, mm-hmm. like by the door mm-hmm. or a window. Like he's got the the shades drawn and he's just watching over his family with a big gun. Yeah, and so he had to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew his life was in danger. So, um, although the three men convicted were were members of the Nation of Islam, the two maintained their in- innocence, and decades of research has since cast doubt on the outcome of the case. Oh, so they so. You mean decades of research think that they weren't guilty? Right. That well, that's just that the other two? doubt. Yeah. yeah. Tens of thousands of declassified pages documenting government surveillance, infiltration, and disruption of black leaders and organizations, oh, you think including the government Malcolm did it. X and the Nation of Islam. Yep. Yeah. Suggest the conclusion drawn by law enforcement was self-serving. They don't want. Yeah, they don't want them to get too powerful. And irregularities in how investigators and prosecutors handled the case reflect at best gross negligence and at worst something more sinister. Oh, no. So at the time of his death, Time Magazine remembered him unsympathetically as a pimp, a cocaine addict, and a thief, and an unashamed demagogue. Of course. They all tear down anybody who's a threat. But for those who had been paying closer attention, he was an uncompromising advocate to the for the urban poor and working class black America. Right. Instead of advocating integration, he called for self-determination. Instead of nonviolence in the face of violent anti-black attacks, he called for self-defense. Right. He reserved moral appeals for other people committed to social justice. The government, on the other hand, he understood in terms of organized power to be challenged, disrupted, and dismantled. It was his challenge to the organization of power of the state that appealed to the growing number of African Americans. And it was the challenge that also attracted a close following among federal, state, and local law enforcement. The FBI 
under J. Edgar Hoover's watch, kept close tabs on it, his every move. Yeah. And even before he began attracting large audiences and widespread media coverage in the late 50s and early 60s, they had efforts to organize Nation of Islam mosques around the country. And then um, there was <coughs> a quote. J. Edgar Hoover sent a telegram to the FBI's New York office that simply and plainly instructed, do something about Malcolm X, enough of this black violence in New York. Which is weird. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I think I think the government I think they take out like JFK. Like I think they did that too. Mm -hmm. They just take out anybody who's making too many waves and cuz they you know. there was their actions were complemented by the New York Police Department's Bureau of Special Services too, which l regularly logged license plates of cars parked outside mosques, organizational meetings and businesses that's and terrible. homes. The actions of the police on the day of Malcolm X's assassination are noteworthy. Normally, up to two dozen police were assigned at Malcolm X's rallies, but on February 21st, just a week after his home had been firebombed, not one officer was stationed at the entrance to the Audubon Ballroom where the meeting took place. Yeah, that's suspicious right there. And while two uniformed officers were inside the building, they remained in a smaller room at a distance from the main area. Yeah, just like the whole thing with JFK's <laughs> thing. Like, mm -hmm. oh. Yep, just nobody happens to be there, and they just happen to be going on a route right across a bunch of stuff, and they're having the the convertible, which they would have never done. Like I said, there's no reason they would have done any of those things. Mm -hmm. Well, and just like that the, was compounded by internal compromises on the part of his own security staff, which included at security? least one Bureau of Special Services agent who had infiltrated his organization. Really? So, reportedly, at Malcolm's request, his security had abandoned the search procedure that had been customary at the meetings. Wow. Without the search procedure, his armed assassins were able to enter the ballroom undetected. And when they stood up to shoot Malcolm, his security guards stationed at the front of the stage moved not to secure him, but to clear out of the way. Ugh. So, these anomalies... So, you think they all were in on it? Well, they could be inconsequential in and of themselves, but combined, even just by coincidence, they proved to be... That all sounds bad. Yep, and, and um, the investigation that followed was just as careless. The crime scene was not secured for extensive forensic analysis. Instead, it was cleaned up to allow for a scheduled dance to take place that afternoon with holes still in the wall. That's terrible. So his... His death for activists took on a greater significance than law enforcement publicly expressed. Um, Congress of Racial Equality Chairman James Farmer was among the first to suggest that his murder was more than just an act of sectarian violence. Did you say Congress of? Congress, Congress, of, Congress of Racial Equality uh, Chairman. Oh, the chairman of that. Yeah. Said what? said it was he thought it was more than just an act of sectarian oh, violence he right. said this i believe this was a political killing yep sounds um, like it so nothing is ever as it seems and then his doubts kind of started to gain traction and then there were some books written about it um and there's just a lot of questions and they deserve answers they call upon us to revisit not just the political significance of malcolm x's life but the implications of his murder it's nuts. Everything from the 60s. Yep. And Malcolm X was gunned down just as he's Suspicious. beginning to think for himself, as he put it, and to express a radical program for black, for black liberation. His premature death and the subsequent suppression and decline of the black movement 
have made it easier for second-rate reformists to claim Malcolm as theirs. But anyone who listens to Malcolm's speeches or reads any of his writings can be in no doubt about his trajectory, which is summed w sum summarized well in his famous ballot or bullet speech. And that was given April 3rd, 1964, which is a date I did not give you. I'm sorry. That's fine. Are you going to read his bullet Just a, speech? Just a minute. Just a little bit. Of read it. the whole thing in his voice. Like, do no, an I'm impression. Not, I can't. No, I'm not an American. I'm one of the 22 million black people who are the victims of Americanism. One of the 22 million black people who are the victims of democracy. Nothing but disguised hypocrisy. So I'm not standing here speaking to you as an American or a patriot or a flag saluter or a flag waver. No, not I. I'm speaking as a victim of this American system. And I see America through the eyes of a victim. I don't see any American dream. I see an American nightmare. It's impossible to predict how Malcolm's politics would have developed had he lived. He had embraced ideas that put him squarely on the left of the black nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. His hostility to the system and the twin capitalist parties and his commitment to end racism and his identification with anti-imperialism represented an enormous contribution to radical politics. And I got my information from CNN.com. There was a good article on ThoughtCo.com and... Um, Ahmed Shawkey is, I think, is the author of Black Liberation and Socialism. It really, it, this country really is a terror for some people, you know? I know. We talk about this American dream, but it really isn't for everybody. It's only for white people and yep. and wealthy people. Like, it's, it really is rough for a lot of people. And more so than we ever have even experienced. Yep, of course. That's that's hilarious. I know, I know. <laughs> that's why I didn't know if I wanted to do. No, I mean we got to cover it. It was very important, but it's and it's it's good for everyone to take a pause and be like, and think about just it. Like, you know, just realize what you have and how lucky we are. Well, and, and I never, I had never read a lot of his speeches before researching that, and yeah. he was he said a lot of cool things. Right. And I know some of it was, but... It, I don't know nearly enough as I should. And I used to. Yeah. I studied a lot of this in college, but I don't remember anything. But Yeah, you don't remember anything from college. I remember nothing from college. <laughs> but I took a lot of uh, African-American history classes. I took I, I enough where I could have minored in it. I took, yeah, black, a bunch of black history, black music, black everything. Yep. You got a prize for that. But then, but now I don't remember any of it. I don't remember anything. So what point is there? Marijuana really yes, it does. makes you forget stuff. It's true. Anyway, that was interesting. I didn't know any of that. That was kind of like a history lesson. It's history for jerks. Yep. Uh, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize all that. I knew he was assassinated. Yes. I knew that they put it on the Nation of Islam, but I didn't really know much more than that. Um, I could see it being the government. Yeah. Oh, I totally can. Um, of course, now we're putting this on a broadcast medium. But though, if you yeah. see on this, y'all, but still, now they're going to come for us. Yep. But I think, it actually, we're living in a matrix. So the government won't come for us now because they'll, they'll realize, oh, he's just nuts. No, they're probably already watching because they think I'm a nut. But uh, that's good. Let's finish up. Mark, let's... We got to do. That's February. We got to do one more month, yes, right? Yes, we do. So Saturday, March 6, sixth, nineteen sixty-five. We got another number one song on the Billboard charts. 
Let's see, see if you've ever heard of this song. It's by The Temptations. Uh, I'd say yes. We, For the Gordy Motown record label? We only played it at our wedding. Yes, much to many people's chagrin. Yes. There were people not happy with you. I know. You were accused of stealing that song from somebody else's wedding. Uh, This is written and produced by the Miracles members, Smokey Robinson and Ronald White. Mm -hmm. The song became the first Temptations U.S. number one single, and is today their signature song. Robinson's inspiration for writing this song was his wife, Miracles member Claudette Rogers Robinson. And okay. The recorded version of My Girl was the first Temptation single to feature David Ruffin on lead vocals. All right. Did you know that? Nope. I did not know that. Well, now you know. Um, and then on Sunday, March 13th, 1965, mm-hmm. uh, that we knocked the Temptations off the chart. The Beatles are back with another number one song. The Beatles, everybody. This was my favorite as a kid. Yeah, I like this one. Written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon based on McCartney's original idea. Uh, McCartney has attributed the inspiration for the song to two different sources. Mm -hmm. In a 1984 interview with Playboy magazine, he credited the title to one of Ringo Starr's Malaproisms. Malaproisms? Malaproisms? I don't know how to say that word. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) <laughs> which similarly, 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 Whoa. I can't say that word either. Which simmer, similarly, similarly, hard to say. Which similarly provided titles for the Lennon McCartney songs "A Hard Day's Night" and "Tomorrow Never Knows." This is all according to Wikipedia. McCartney recalled, "He said it as though no, he went." Oh, <laughs> don't do the voice. He said it as though uh, Paul McCartney's like very distinct. I can do it. He said it as though he went overworked chauffeur. Eight days a week. When we heard it, we said, really? Bing! Got it! McCartney subsequently credited the title to an actual chauffeur who once drove him to Lennon's house in Weybridge. In the Beatles anthology book, he he states, I usually drove myself there, but the chauffeur drove me that day. I said, how you you been? Oh, working hard, he said. Working eight days a week. God, you got the worst accents. No, that time I sounded like Paul. I really did. Uh... Anyway, so McCartney later on reiterated that it was the chauffeur uh, that did it. And, and Ringo Starr said, I didn't say that. Fuck him. Fuck Paul McCartney, goddammit. Do they have bad blood? No, I don't oh, think so. making that up? No, he did say, I never said that. He said that was wrong when he said that. Oh. And then on Monday, March 15th, 1965, do you know who Alan Stillman is? No. You ever heard of Alan Stillman? No. Duh. Well, Alan Stillman, on Monday, March 15, 1965, opened the first TGI Fridays restaurant in Manhattan. God, who cares? It became one of the world, because, because this is why we care, because it became, you don't know this, it became one of the world's first singles bars. It, oh, it really? It didn't become a family restaurant until much later when it expanded to the suburbs. So he lived in a neighborhood with many... Airline stewardesses, fashion models, secretaries, and other young single people at the uh, of the east side of Manhattan mm-hmm. near the Queensboro Bridge, and he hoped that opening a bar would help him meet women. 
at the time, Stillman's Jeez. choices for socializing, nobody had a, there weren't singles bars. Right. So the choices for socializing were non-public cocktail parties or guys beer drinking hangouts that women never went in. Um, That's true. That's a pickle. Yeah. So he said there was no public place for people between, say, 23 to 37 to meet. He sought the he sought to recreate the comfort. It's funny that we don't have singles bars anymore. Singles bar. Now everybody goes out. It doesn't matter anywhere you go. Yeah. But, but he sought to recreate the comfortable cocktail party atmosphere in public, despite having no experience in the restaurant business. Uh, so he took five thousand of his own dollars and five thousand borrowed from his mother, and he purchased a bar he often visited, the Good Tavern at the corner of Sixty Third Street and First Avenue, mm-hmm. and renamed it TGI Fridays. Uh, after an expression, thank God it's Friday, that they used to use at Bucknell University where he went. That's uh, where that came from? I guess. Uh, the new restaurant serves standard American cuisine, bar food, and alcoholic beverages, but emphasized food quality and preparation. The exterior was red and white striped with, a, with really blue paint. Still? Yep, that's what it started with. A gay 90s interior, including fake Tiffany lamps, wooden floors, yep. bentwood chairs, and striped tablecloths. And the bar area added brass rails and stained glass mm-hmm. the employees were young and wore red and white striped soccer shirts and every time someone had a birthday the entire restaurant crew came around with a cake and sang tgi friday's traditional birthday song god that this in 1965 1965 they did, they did that's when they started but it was a singles bar think about yeah. it it's like a club it was one of the first to use promotions such as ladies night and, oh, and stillman did achieve his high hopes of meeting women mm-hmm. and he he quoted he was quoted to say have you seen the movie Cocktail? Tom Cruise played me. Why do girls want to date the bartender? To this day, I'm not sure I get it. Okay. But he said he was all swing, slinging drinks and they all loved him. And That's TGI Fridays became so popular that it had to install ropes to create an area for those waiting in line. Also unusual at the time for a restaurant. Yeah. And then a competitor, Maxwell's Plum, opened across the street and others soon popped up everywhere where ladies were going out to meet dudes. Um, That's funny, a change in the culture like that. Yeah, and then he, a fellow grad of Bucknell and him opened other restaurants, including Tuesdays, Thursdays, Wednesdays, and Ice Cream Sundays. Oh, they did? Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't either. But yeah, so it used to be a singles bar. I had no idea. Now it's a stupid, shitty chain restaurant that yes. nobody wants to go to. Yep. Um, there you go. Now you know that. Everyone knows it, and now you know it, and now you can go. I don't remember the last time I was at a TGI Friday. Well, now our listeners, uh, because uh, we mentioned this, you can now use code American Timelines is great, motherfucker, at the at mm-hmm. any TGI Fridays, any participating one, and you'll get uh, any tw- participating you'll get ten percent off a, an appetizer, an appetizer. I think they're called. Yeah. So just grab your uh, waiter or waitress by the lapel and say American Timeline is the best podcast ever motherfucker and they'll give you 10% off an appetizer at participating at participating (laughs) and you don't know which one's participating until you do that and if they don't give it to you then they weren't participating participating. okay yeah what's next Thursday March 18th 1965 Mm -hmm. cosmonaut Alex Leonov Mm -hmm. was the first person to walk in space Oh. Uh, he became the first human to conduct a spacewalk, exiting the capsule during the Vakshad 2 mis- mission for 12 minutes and 9 seconds. Creepy. Isn't that crazy? Creepy. A walk in space? Yes, it's creepy. It, it freaks me out. I don't care for it. Um, 
And then Tuesday, March 23rd, 1965, mm-hmm. speaking of NASA, NASA astronaut John Young mm-hmm. upset Congress by smuggling a corned beef sandwich onto Gemini 3, oh, prompting no. the House of Representatives Appropriations Committee to organize a meeting to investigate the sandwich scandal. Well, because that could fuck up everything. Uh, you would think, yeah. <laughs> Young slipped the sandwich into his pocket just before launching on Gemini 3 on March 23rd. It was the first U.S. mission to carry two astronauts and a corned beef sandwich. Uh, Young and his crewmate, Gus Grissom, uh, were the guys on there. But the so- he smuggle it in his space suit and stuff? I don't know. He put it up his ass. But the Soviets had launched their own two-person mission, Foxshot 2, less than a week earlier, so tensions were already high among politicians when Gemini 3 safely made it to space and efficiently completed its objectives. The corned beef sandwich sparked a brief conversation between Young and Grissom, according to the Gemini 3 transcript. The chat lasted for only about a minute of the nearly six-hour mission. I got a fucking corned beef sandwich in my pants. Where is it? Is it in my butt? So that's the brief conversation. But he couldn't have eaten it up there. Why not? Because it, it'll float everywhere. it float all away everywhere. You can hold it with your hands. Your hands still work up there. Yeah, but those pieces... Maybe he... There's no gravity. Imagine hanging upside down from the ceiling and trying to hold the sandwich. In I've done hand. that before. Yeah. <laughs> you probably have. And then Wednesday, March 24th, 1965, live TV pictures from the U.S. unmanned moon probe Ranger 9 are transmitted prior to its impact on okay. TV. First television images of that yeah. and then thursday march 25th 1965 yes the selma to montgomery march was part of oh, a yes. series of civil rights protests that occurred in 1965 in alabama a southern state with deeply entrenched racist policies yes in march of that year in an effort to register black voters in the south protesters marched the 54 mile route from selma to the state capital of montgomery and they were confronted with deadly violence from local authorities and white vigilante groups. As the world watched, the protesters, under the protection of federalized National Guard troops, finally achieved their goal, walking around the clock for three days. Oh, my God. To reach Montgomery. Can you imagine? No. The historic march and Martin Luther King Jr.'s participation in it raised awareness of the difficulties faced by black voters. How and did the they do that around the clock for, for three days? Because they're badass. And the need for a National Voting Rights Act. Pop singer Bobby Darin, mm-hmm. uh, real name Walden Robert Casado, was an advocate for civil rights and participated in the 1965s in that same in that civil oh, rights march awesome. of Alabama. Um, Saturday, March 27, 1965, the Supremes take over the number one spot on Billboard chart. <laughs> Two days after Selma. This came on the radio. This is a good one. Another Motown production team of Holland Dozier Holland. They're the, magical. Yeah. The Supremes were hot. The choreography for the song involved one hand on the hip and the other outstretch and a stop gesture. Yep. Paul Williams and Melvin Franklin of The Temptations taught the girls that routine backstage in London. Uh, before the Supremes' first televised performance of the single on the Ready, Steady, Go special, mm-hmm. The Sound of Motown, hosted by Motown enthusiast Dusty Springfield. They also performed the song on the episode of the ABC variety program Shindig, mm-hmm. which aired on February 24, 1965. And this is where we're going to have to cut it off from here because we're out of time. All right. And we're going to have to say oh, stop. America! 
Get out of here, Chuck Berry. In the name of love. Or something. Chuck Berry, stop taking pictures of us in our bathroom. Thanks for listening, yeah, guys. We love you. Uh, sorry about the downer episode. Yeah. But uh, racism is not funny. Uh, Malcolm X murder oh, wasn't funny. America. But we said some stupid funny things. Oh, I ate a sandwich oh. upside down. That, that was a good Yeah. Uh, also, look out for our spinoff podcast called Notable Alumni, where we just talk about high school and so things people we went to. You and that mouse in your pocket, because it is not going That's not my mouse, that's my wiener. All right. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. I love you, everybody. When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young. Tired of hearing about the six days. One more time, I said we're so tired of hearing about the six days. Well, make me shut my mouth. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Samantha, that's a hickey.